Okay, before we jump into my message, let's just talk Fill the City. I realize if you're new here, you would be wondering, what is that all about? Do these guys do that every Sunday? No, we don't. This is once a year, our annual campaign, where we go above and beyond. Just so you know this, as a church, as a family, um, we are generous. We give, as a family, we give 10% of our finances to this local church to see God's ministry multiplied to this community. But then once a year we get together and as common ground churches and we over and above that rally around this vision to fill the city of Cape Town with the message, life and fame of Jesus. To be honest with you, I wrestled this year coming in. Do, do we really need to do a fifth lap of fill the city? I mean, COVID's come along. Surely if there was a moment to shrink back, this would be that moment, you know. And then, then we came at our fill the city um, kind of asks and budget, etc., etc. And I looked at the things we'd be switching off. Could you imagine switching off common good, uh, saying, for the, for the, okay, because of COVID, for the next, for the next year, uh, ch- children born in our city for the first thousand years that are not getting the building blocks that they need to survive and flourish for the rest of their lives, are we just going to turn that? I thought, no, I, can't, I can't do that. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. Um, uh, you know, then, then there's education. I mean, what, what, do we switch that off? Do we, do we, do we, switch, do we switch how we're helping learners who are struggling to to, 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 to ready to break through historical educational barriers for their future. Do we just switch that off because of God? I thought, no ways. Yeah, there are some things we switched off. We took our budget and we, we more than halved it from last year. So there were, there were some things that we switched off. But we stripped it back to what are the things we just could not, as Christ followers, as a church, of means, you know, in the city of Cape Town, among the wealthier kind of uh, parts of the city of Cape Town, that's our church. We've got to realize that. What are the things we couldn't switch off? And the other one was, uh, it doesn't come with a big price tag. It's the strengthening of under-resourced churches that we do. And the last one, the, the M5 church plant and the Langer church plant. If we can see these churches through the next kind of like 18 critical months, those churches will go on and become churches that minister for decades. We've invested so far to get them to this place. Oh, man, Lord, we don't want to just trip up in this moment. And so really, we stripped it right back to the, the, the smallest number we possibly could. And we said, these things, we, we, could not, we could not switch off. These are the things we want to give ourselves to. And so that's what Fill the City has become about. I'll explain a little bit more in the coming two weeks um, and we'll get to hear from the Langer Church Plan. We'll get to hear from the A5 Church Plan. But I just want to encourage you to start grappling with God. To say, God, in this moment, can I stretch? Can I go further, even in my generosity? Can I also say to those of you who've been hit massively by COVID and you find your incomes radically reduced, can I say, please just be released? Please just don't feel any guilt. That's okay. That really is okay that you don't feel pressured into doing something that you're just not able to do in that moment. Can you hear me in that? It's so important. Okay, makes sense. Great. Oh, man, I'm really excited about these things and uh, to get behind them as well in our family too. I'll tell you a little bit more about how we're doing that in the coming two weeks. But let's shift gears and jump back into Mark. Let's go, and if you've got your Bible, won't you open up to Mark chapter 8? Follow along with us wherever you are in your homes or here, but open up your Bible, whether digital or um, paper, and... um, it's Luke Harper who's preaching, I see there. That's great to know. Uh, sorry, is that your way of saying I must introduce yourself as well? I introduced myself. I'm Luke. For those of you who don't know me, I'm sorry for being so rude. Uh, if we jump back into the book of Mark, uh, let me catch you up on our journey. Mark has got 16 books in the book of Mark, right? Last year we did uh, from chapter 1, so not 16 books, 16 chapters. From chapter 1 
to chapter 8, halfway through <laughs> chapter 8. And then in Holy Week, we did chapter 14 to chapter 16. The rest of this year, through in and out, not in one yeah. go, but dipping in and out, we're going to close the gap between where we finished last year and where we finished on Holy Week. Uh, Mark has got two big questions he's grappling with and he's trying to communicate to us. The first one is, who is Jesus? And the second one is, what did he come to do? Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? We've seen who Jesus is last year. Now we're going to grapple with what did Jesus come to do? And the spoiler alert is it's a massive shock to everyone who who gets to see that. So let's uh, read together. Mark chapter 8 verse 31 um, to chapter 9 and verse 1. The big idea behind my message today, just so we know before we go in, is I want to speak for the next three weeks about the kind of people who will fill the city of Cape Town with the message, life, and fame of Jesus. The kind of people who will fill the city of Cape Town with the message, life, and fame of Jesus. And those kind of people are those, and we'll see in this text, who, who, begin, who set our minds on the things of God. Today we're going to look at setting our mind on the things of God. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, this was the title Jesus used of himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, when you put those together and the representatives together, you get what's called the Jewish Sanhedrin. That was the seat of leadership authority of the Jewish faith. After three days would rise again. But he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in order to return his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be ashamed when he comes in glory to his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. With saying that uh, verse 1 there, that we've just finished on there, some who will not taste death, speaks, I think, as we look at the Bible scholars and what they say about, about Christ ascending to the Father and then uh, also echoing the fall of Jerusalem that would happen within their generation as well. And we'll see more of that on Mark chapter 13. Um, but let's pray together before we get any further into God's Word. Father, would you, would you be with us today, we pray? Would you come and speak to us in our homes and here in person? Come, Holy Spirit, and stir us from your word. Jesus, as we look at some really hard sayings, we, we are so thankful for the parts of your Bible that, that are easier almost, that uh, make us feel inspired and in, in those ways as well, that warm our hearts, God. But we're also grateful, God, and we recognize as a people that we need your tough sayings too. And so, Christ, would you speak to us today from your word as we grapple with one of the tougher things that you say in your word. Amen. 
Okay, so we've seen Christ has been revealed as the Messiah. We know who Jesus is. Jesus is the one. That's what we saw last year. He's the one that was promised to Israel, the Messiah. But now Jesus encounters a problem as he begins to teach them what the one is is here to do. And, And he encounters a problem. It's a massive problem because their understanding of God, their worldview of God is all wrong. And what they're doing is they're bringing all their expectations, all of their faulty assumptions about what the Messiah will do, and they're putting that onto Jesus. Okay, so you're the Messiah. That means X, Y, Z. You are going to X, Y, Z. And they put all these expectations onto Jesus. The problem is these are wrong expectations. And so Jesus, verse 31, we read together, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. You see, this began, it actually hints at like a long, difficult journey that's going to be going on here, uh, that Jesus is going to be taking these, these guys on here. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be rejected by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the leadership authority of the Jews, and that he must be killed. It's worth noting here, it's not humanity at its worst that's going to crucify Jesus. It's not the most evil kind of bloodthirsty savages that are going to do this. It's like the leadership of God's people. It's the very best, in inverted commas, of humanity that's going to do this. And then uh, he would rise again after three days. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and he, he, and he began. Do you see that word there? And he began. It's Jesus begins to teach what he's going to do. And straight away, Peter begins to take him aside. And Mark's intentional here. He's saying, as Jesus starts to talk about what he's going to do, straight away, they kick back against it. It's this, and he began. And so he began. It's this straight away, this little combat that's about to happen. There's a problem here. And Jesus began. And so Peter began to rebuke him. It's a stern word. It's the same word Jesus uses when he speaks to demons. It's a big, Peter's taking him aside here, and he's going to set Jesus straight. I mean, I wonder what that guy was thinking. Uh, Hey, I mean, imagine Jesus, Jesus, come. And to rebuke is a stern word. You see, what's happening is Peter has got an understanding of what the promised Messiah was going to do when he came. Peter's understanding was much like the Jewish people, the disciples' understanding. They expected a Messiah who would come, who would be a, um, I've got three little parts to him, a teacher Messiah. He would teach again, and he would reinstitute the Jewish way of life, centering God's people around God's laws. Instead, Jesus came, and his teaching was full of parables about the kingdom of God. He taught of the nearness of God's love. He taught of forgiveness for sins for sinners, and no one wanted that. They expected a purity Messiah who would rid the land of all the unclean people, you know. Instead, Jesus was more gracious to outsiders um, than, than even what he was to insiders, you know. Uh, and and he, he took on those who were pure of the day, you know. And then the big one was they all expected a military leader Messiah, someone who would lead up a revolt, who would overthrow the Romans and then finally make this nation great again. That was what they expected. And instead, Jesus comes and says, the Messiah must suffer be rejected by the Jewish leadership and be raised back and, and die and be raised back to life. He's redefining messiahship. He's redefining who God is and what God came to, to do. But he's redefining it beyond recognition for even his own disciples. They were expecting a, a, this kind of triumphant victory a messiah with success and everything in the way that they thought he would defeat their enemies. And said, he said, no, I'm all about rejection. I'm about suffering and I'm about death. 
And you can see just for them how this is just so, they, they cannot even get their minds there. It's so hard. Jesus was nothing like what they're expected. Uh, and they are trying to put their expectations of what they think God should be like and what they think God should be doing onto Jesus. They're putting this worldview onto them. It's worth asking the question, where did they get their worldview from? I mean, where did that come from? And the answer is a mix of the scriptures and their own hopes and dreams. It took the scriptures and their own hopes and own longings and wants and they merged them. And they found this kind of, oh, this is what the Messiah is going to come and do. Which doesn't sound very sinister, does it? Yet let's see how Jesus responds in verse 33. And Jesus But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Satan meaning literally adversary. I mean, it's probably one of the most memorable rebukes in all of Scripture, right? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Sorry, did I warn us today and say today was a heavy one? Did I? I should have, I should have warned you. I should have said just... Anyway, I'm sorry. Retrospective warning, hey? You have not set your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus, judo flips this moment. Peter thought he was rebuking Jesus. Jesus ends up rebuking Peter, and he gives him one of the hardest claps in the whole of the Bible, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus, what he does is he points out Satan's influence in Peter's thinking. He says, uh, he says Peter, you've elevated the things of man above the things of God. Now, now Peter wasn't actively taking Satan's side, but, but it's this indirectly, he, he was indirectly taking Satan's side when he co-opted and appropriated God into his understanding, into his hopes, into his worldview. And he co-opted Jesus effectively into his own personal agenda. Does it seem a little bit harsh the way Jesus rebukes him? Perhaps an overreaction. It's not. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is recognizing that the worst kind of evil is not plain, blatant evil over there. Because if it was, Peter would have recognized it as dangerous and dark, and he would have said, no, that's repulsive. I'd never do that thing, right? I mean, that, that's the thing with sin. Sometimes you know, a straight-up proposition from a prostitute, probably, you know, you, you, it's probably the kind of thing you'd go, no, 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 I, I won't. But it's that subtle mix and allure that comes over time that's far more you know, dangerous to us. It's what Jesus is recognizing, the most dangerous kind of evil is evil mixed in with truth. It's, it's lies, it's rubbish mixed in with a good dose of logic and scriptures, etc. It becomes so dangerous because it's not obvious. It's, it's, it's even palatable. And these things blur. It's hard to recognize. Well, I wonder, what would you say is some of that in, in our city? Just take a second and think for yourself. We live in a culture too. Our culture too is Got a little bit of this mixed in. I came across in my preparation about a, a there's a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he surveyed um, 3,000 teenagers and he asked them about God. And, and admittedly, they are Western thinking teenagers. Um, he wrote a book called Almost Christian, and he describes their worldview of many people, I think, today. It's called moral therapeutic deism. And there's five tenets to this kind of faith or worldview out there, and this is what he says. Uh, moral therapeutic deism, that this is the belief, the worldview. And see if you can see a bit of this. There is a God, this is what I say many in our culture believe, there is a God who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. 
The central goal of life is to be happy, pursuit of happiness, and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem, and good people go to heaven when they die. What you end up is this kind of follow your heart. Be your own unique version of good. Everybody is snowflake. You, you know, individual, none the same. Uh, God wants to help you towards happiness if you need his help. And what we've done is we've constructed a Messiah to give us what we hope and we long for. We've taken bits of truth from the scriptures and bits of our own hope. And we've mixed in this kind of worldview. And in so doing, we've set the things of man above the things of God. And we've co-opted God into our own agenda. And I think Jesus addresses this modern version as much as he addresses their ancient one as well. If we take a look in verse four, verse 34 together. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice Jesus says, if anyone. This is something you've got to do on your own. It's personal. Your family can't do this for you. Your spouse can't do this for you. Your friends can't do this for you. Your parents can't do this for you. Your children can't do this for you. This is if anyone. You've got to do this for you. If anyone would, if anyone wishes, the NIV, I think, goes. If anyone, this is something you volunteer for. If anyone wants, if anyone, you've got to want this. And what is it you've got to want? Come after me. Uh, come after me, which is a phrase in the Bible. We, we use the word discipleship is what it describes. Discipleship is not really a word you use probably when you walk out of Sunday. It's a very churchy word. And so over generations, it's kind of lost its meaning. But the closest word we have to it, I think in English now, is apprenticeship. If anyone would apprentice after me, you'd come after me, you'd become like me. An apprenticeship in the Bible speaks about three things. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and learn to do as Jesus did. If you, if you want to be a Christ follower, you're signing up to be with Jesus. Those days, disciples would spend all day with Jesus. They'd eat three meals with him, they'd follow him around. There was a saying that said, um, it was like a blessing. May you be caked in the dust of your rabbi. The idea being that you're so closely behind him all the day that by the time the day is over, you've got his dust all over you, right? You've been with Jesus. That's what we do as Christ followers. We be with Jesus. Modern version, apprenticeship. Modern version, discipleship. Modern version of following Christ. Be with Jesus. In order that, you learn to become like Jesus. And so as you be with him, you start to think like him. You start to desire like him. You find your heart begins to change to look more like Christ's heart. You start to care more about the same things he cares about, etc. You become like Jesus. This is what we sign up for as Christians. It's not opting into heaven one day, but to be a Christ follower. I want to be with you, Jesus, in order that I can become like you. Because I believe that in following you, I'm going to become the person you created me to be in the first place. But the goal of all of that is, number three, in order that you learn to do as Jesus did. And you actually, the goal of this is you become part of Jesus' ministry team. The, 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 when Jesus said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, it wasn't like you used to catch fish. Now I'm going to teach you to catch people as often as, but that's not what he's saying. It was a phrase that spoke of one day. When I've trained you up enough, I'm going to send you out and you are going to continue the work that I'm doing. You're going to become like me. You're going to be, be transforming your world just like I am now. And Jesus says, you be with me, you become like me, then you learn to live as I live. This is what we sign up, this Common Ground South Penn, that's what we're all about. And Jesus says, in order to do that, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me is what he's describing there. What does deny yourself mean? Well, I think it means 
Remove yourself from the center of, the, of your own world. Remove yourself from the center of your world. It's a fundamental reorientation of your whole life. It means that there are parts of you and parts of me that we're going to have to learn to deny. Just let that lovely sounding Harley, I think, go by. There are parts of you and there are parts of me that we've got to learn to deny. There's desires, appetites, affections, orientations within yourself and within myself that are not compatible with Jesus. And to be a Christ follower means we set the things of God above these things. He says we need to take up our cross. When we read that, we get, um, we get something like... Um, life is going to be quite tough if you're a follower of Jesus. Something like that, some version of that. But that's quite off what Jesus is saying. Back then, the cross wasn't like a beautiful symbol or some sort of beautiful thing you'd wear around your neck as jewelry. The cross was like a symbol of... I mean, I try to think what would a modern-day example be, but imagine there was a toilet that was also an electric chair. This disgusting thing that kills people as well. Could you imagine wearing that around your neck and going out in public? When Jesus spoke these words, I, I, I can't think of it. It was disgusting. It was humiliating. It was shameful. It was, you wouldn't talk about it. People would, ah, they would detest it. Like, ah, that's, that's your reaction to the cross. It's not something beautiful you'd wear. And Jesus was saying, you must take up your cross. He was, it was, they all understood it was associated with death. In fact, 12, 10 out of the 12 disciples were martyred. They, 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 they literally, many of them actually died on a cross. Jesus was calling them to death when he said this. The total, relinqu- total relinquishment, trying to find out what it means for us today. Total relinquishment of one's allegiance, resources, and reputation. Really, it's the totality of yourself handed over to Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, we're going to take some proper hits. I'm mean, saying a lot more than that, actually. I wanted to stop and ask us, when last did we take some hits for Jesus, well, not just that. Am I really denying myself and carrying my cross? Jesus is saying, our world and God are at odds with each other. They're at a cross, if you will. There's a rub. As I've been preparing this message, I've been asking myself, where is my life at? Where's my? Where am I rubbing with our culture? Why am I not rubbing with culture? I remember my first pastor. I've only ever had three. Four. Three. Three. Um, Dave is no longer with us. Um, he's part of the reference we'll see in Hebrews 12 just now. But he, said, he said one day, he says, if you think you're following Jesus and it hasn't cost you anything, he said, you're not following Jesus, you're just taking a walk. <laughs> As a young man, I was <gasps> I think about it. Like, where is my life at rub? Where is it rubbing with our culture? Or is my life kind of just like everyone else, you know? What, what, what is the cost that my faith is bringing to me? And Jesus says this. He says, for, for whoever would save his life, you're trying to save your life. You, if your life is all about self-preservation, how do I look after me and mine? If you're trying to save your life, you'll lose it, he says. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it continues 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You can gain the whole world, Jesus is saying. If, you, if you're trying to preserve your life, and you, get, you can get so good at it, he's saying, that you gain the whole world. You can, you can get so good at living, uh, kind of following your own dreams, doing what you want to do. You can get so good, you can become like George Bezos, um, Elon Musk, Help me out, some Bill Gates, all three of them. You, can get, you could get so good, you could be like all three of them merged into one, right? You could get so good at living, you know, that way that you, you get all of that. Jesus is saying, it's a poor deal. I'd never take, never, wouldn't even consider it, wouldn't even put it on the table because it costs you your soul. It's not worth it. Can you just imagine that? Jesus is saying here that there is nothing better you can do with your life than follow him with your whole life. There is nothing. There is no promise. There is, there, is no, there is no goal you could chase outside of him that could even come close to following him with your whole life. There is nothing you could pursue that comes close to a life lived in service and in followership of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you kind of go full-time, become like the minister, pastor, etc., etc. That means in and through your life, in your career, in your family, in your ministry, in your neighborhood, that you, you, you live this way. There's nothing that can come close. You could gain everything. You could gain the whole world, Jesus says. But it's, but it's just a poor deal. He said, I wouldn't even... Con- it's just too low a thing. Amazing statement when you think about it, eh? Okay, Luke. Maybe you say after all of that, you say, okay, okay, I'm in, I'm in. But how do we do this? How, where, do I find the, where do I find the motivation? Because I mean, maybe you feel like it now, and it's great, you should. The Spirit of God is here, we're worshiping, we, God's with us, we, we're hearing the Bible. It's, you feel, yes, I'm in. But now you're going to walk from this place, you're going to go out to life. Tomorrow's going to be Monday morning, right? Where do you find the motivation there? And I want to point to two last things here that help us. This shows us how to live in this particular way. Number one, and, and, and it's in this text. Number one, live today with an, e- with an eternal perspective. Live today with an eternal perspective. Look what Jesus says, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Which means exactly what it says. But how do we apply that to our lives? What it means the world, the way it is now, is not all that there is. There is a moment of, there is an eternal reality that you can't just see and feel right now. There, there is a moment coming when Christ will return in power to put this whole world back to right. When the tables will be turned. It feels like all that's real right now is what you feel when you walk out, when you read the paper, when you walk out into your office meetings, into your neighborhoods, etc. It feels like that is all that's real right now. Jesus said it's not. There is an eternal reality. There is a king who is returning in power and he will come and he will set this thing right. He will come, and the power and the prominence of the kingdom of God will be revealed in that moment. And our task as Christ followers is to live now in this moment in light of that moment. It looks like, and I'm trying to think of something that helps us see this. Kingdom of God right now feels like a stream in your life. A stream, stream. But But if you follow the stream up, you get to this place where there's this dam wall, Right? And behind this dam wall is such an immense volume of water that if, were, if it were to break, it would just, like those movies, you know when the dam wall breaks and it just, even Almighty or any of those things you've seen, right? 
Jesus is saying, right now, you don't just live focused on the stream. It feels like a stream right now. No, no. He says, you take your, take your one eye and you, live on the, you look on the stream, and you take your other eye. I can't do this. I'm not a chameleon. And you live mindful of that damn wall. You, you know that there is a day coming where that, that is held back at the moment. It's held back because God's doing a work at the moment. He's held back. Christ is coming, but not just, not just yet. He's, he's held back. But there will come a time when what, what's, what's hidden becomes plain. With the power of God, the full, the full perspective of eternity will be revealed. And if you can live for that moment, then now, that's how you do it. Because there is a time when it will be obvious where faith will no longer be required. But Jesus is saying, but then it's too late. Then it will be too late. In the meanwhile, Christ follows. We are those who live by faith. One more point and then I must land. The second point. Trust in the one who did it first. Trust deeply in the one who did it first. The one who calls us to deny ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, was the first. Wasn't it Jesus called us to do something he didn't do himself? Jesus went first. Surely we can trust the one who goes first. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. Guys, when Jesus says, do this thing, and it looks scary, and it looks difficult, and right now there's so many other offers in the world. There's so many other things you could do and give yourself to. There's so many other ways you could, you could, you could look after yourself, or look after your family, or look after what you're doing. Jesus says, no. Trust me. You say, okay, but what, why, why would I trust you? I say, because Jesus has, has, has done it before. Jesus has given his life more than any other thing that you could trust. Any other obstacle you could put your, obstacle, any other vehicle you could put your hope on. Christ is the one who died for you. He suffered for you. So before he says, lay these things down for me, he does it first for you. You can trust him because he went first. He did it first. He says two two, two motivating things. Number one, trust him because he did it first for you. Number two, Keep your eye on eternity because there is, a, there is a moment coming in your future and my future. It doesn't feel very real maybe right now, but it is as real as the warmth is inside this room right now. And it is coming for our lives. He says, for some, it's coming, it's coming soon. You, you don't know when it is. It's going to oh, be a surprise to me too late. For others, maybe it will be more timely. I don't know. But he says you've got to live mindful that that moment is coming. You've got, to, you've got to appropriate that moment into how you do business, into how you do family, into how you do leisure, into how you do church, into how you do relationships, into how you, we've got to appropriate that moment into this present. That's what's going to enable us to live like him. Does that make sense? We must land. So let's ask some pertinent questions. What does it look like for you right now to set the things of God above the things of man in your world tomorrow morning? Take a second and think about that. What does it look like to set the things of God? Set, it's a verb, it's something you do. It's not something you feel. I feel that it's, it's, you set the things, you, you, you do it. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing you volunteer, you do. What does it look like for you to set the things of God above the things of man in your world tomorrow? What decisions do you need to make this week? 
with your time, with your talents, with your treasures, with your relationships? What does it look like to put these things into place in your life? Let's pray together and reflect a bit, and I'll land us in prayer. Jesus, we don't want to be like that man who, in your word, who who comes to the mirror and sees himself in your word and then forgets what he looks like and walks away. Or walks away and forgets what he looks like. Jesus, I pray for each of us. It just feels like in the book of Mark and even in our church life right now, you're asking more of us. It's tougher. Maybe it was easier before to be a Christ follower, but but this feels tough, God. This feels hard. I pray grace to us to hear the tough things of your word and empower us to make responses that lead to life. I thank you that in your word you spoke of life. It's not about just losing life. You'll gain your life, you said, God. We want to be a people who don't miss anything in this moment, who live for eternity, and who trust the one who denied himself, took up his cross. For our sake first. Jesus, I pray you would speak to us as individuals. What's that thing? What does it look like to put this into practice in your life this week? Hebrews 12 verse 3. Just let me read this over you as we land and I hand over. Says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a, cl- a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that, so, that clings so closely to us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated. At the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus, I pray a strength would come to us now, a courage. I pray for some of us today who are going to make some difficult decisions in favor of living for you, in faith, in their personal lives, in their character, in their businesses, and their families, God. I pray that we would be those who do it because we've considered you. We've considered you. And we've seen your decision. We've considered eternity. We've heard your offer at gaining life truly. And that would inspire us in this time, Jesus. Amen.